Hi, this is Jennifer Jones with The Secret Life of Neurohospitalists. This episode is about working nights. My plan was to chat with a few willing participants throughout a recent night shift about what's good, what's bad, what's different about it. So I began with the stroke coordinator, Allie Hittinger, who stuck around a little late after a code stroke to talk to me for a few minutes. After that, I answered some cross coverage calls, admitted another patient, and then spoke to a hospitalist APP, Pierce Fussell, about his perspective as a nocturnist. I figured I'd talk to one or two more people through the night, maybe a nurse or an ER doc, after my next two transfer patients arrived. I went back to the call room and despite efforts to stay awake, I drifted off. Usually, just the knowledge that a transfer patient is coming works to stop me from falling into any kind of stage three or four sleep, kind of like knowing I have an early flight to catch. But being the second night on and older than I've ever been before, apparently that little nagging awareness got tired too, because eventually I woke to the sound of pounding on my call room door. Someone from the EMS flight crew who actually knew where my call room was, unlike anyone else involved in looking for me, including hospital security, informed me that they'd been looking for me for a code stroke I'd not responded to. As I groggily stumbled to the ER like someone from a disaster movie, seeing messages like, are you okay, from colleagues who had been called at home at 4 a.m., I realized that I'd somehow turned the phone notifications off in my sleep. Either that or the resident call room ghost is really pushing boundaries. To my recollection, I've only ever slept through a code stroke once before, and for similar reasons. Serial night shifts without adequate daytime sleep recovery. I suspect this happens fairly often, judging by the forgiving and understanding response of the ER staff. There are just times where the world reminds us that we're diurnal animals, but many people, particularly in medicine, hack our natural inclination for sleep during the night and wakefulness in the day in order to take care of sick people at all hours. Medical emergencies don't just happen during the day, obviously. So a whole cadre of humans have, in some real ways, offered themselves up with risks to their own physical and mental health in order to provide the best care possible. Here's a little glimpse into night work. Let's talk about how it is in the after hours when the main team is left Mm-hmm. There might be some transitions going on in the ER. Yep. What kind of things tend to happen like at that time as opposed to during the big hustle of the, you know, the main part of the day? Well, so here, as you know full and well, we only have one neurologist at night and we don't have any APPs. And for example, I think it was Wednesday, Dr. Taylor was here. He had just started his shift at 5 p.m., And we got within 30 minutes, we had a code stroke in the ED and three telestrokes at three different sites within 30 minutes. So it just, it really is. And you, the, I hate using the word vibe, but it definitely is a different kind of atmosphere when you walk into the ED after 5 p.m. It usually is crazy. There's more patients there, but there's not as many resource people there seems like everyone kind of comes into the ED after work or, you know, when they get home from work and they find their loved one not doing well or something like that. So it seems like the census picks up and then you get into shift change, which is just a chaotic mess in general for nursing staff and for patients, um, especially somewhere like the ED where you can't really you can't really stop what you're doing. You're like, someone has to be laying eyes on the patients. And so it's really hard to kind of get that shift change. So I would say it just, it's unfortunate. There's less resources and it seems to get more chaotic, at least during the beginning of the night. Yeah. I think it settles down a little bit later. It but, can much later. Yeah. And you're good about helping to find, for example, if we wanted to treat 
and mm -hmm. we needed a pharmacist who yes is, is or maybe isn't most time they're there but yeah even this one just now we didn't have a pharmacist around right if we were going to go to ir you mm -hmm. would help coordinate all that and, and sometimes those are the kinds of things that kind of fall apart after right. hours yes it's very hard <laughs> to get in touch with you know the different groups and make sure that there's a team in-house and so really it's interesting because my title is coordinator i'm a stroke coordinator and i do a lot of coordinating in the code strokes but it seems like the most coordination is needed after hours because you really you're pulling teams in that are coming in from outside of the hospital you're calling people that are being woken up like it just is a little bit more chaotic and so that's why unfortunately we don't have that coverage right now but maybe right. in the future maybe we'll have a nocturnal coordinator yes yes I was going to say the other thing I've noticed you guys doing lately, talking to the nurses, because we have a lot of new nurses in the yes. ER and kind yeah. of explaining the process and what we do. Right. And that's so helpful because, you know, sometimes even if they're just talking to me about things, I'm trying to do multiple things at once, like mm -hmm. pull up old records or find a family member, verify the time of onset, whatever. Right. And you're kind of explaining to the nurse who may or may not have ever had experience with this. Right. And that is invaluable. Like yeah. We might assume that they kind of get the lay of the land, but they may not. Yeah, it's really hard to, when you're moving at a very fast pace and, and treating the code stroke like the emergency it is, it's very hard for someone who is not experienced with code strokes to understand where we're headed. And so, you know, our two treatment options, uh, tenectomy, thrombectomy, if they have a bleed. Um, so it's it's helpful for us to kind of explain along the way where we're at. Okay, we just did the first CT. There's no blood. This is what we're going to do now. And I think that that's helpful for them to kind of gauge, you know, what their uh, care is going to be of the patient as soon as we get out of CT, you know, and, and what they need to be thinking about as far as, you know, are they get, we going to give tenectoplase and stuff. And so when that's not communicated as much in real time, I think it can cause delays because maybe the nurse is caught off guard that we're going to treat this patient just because they they didn't hear a piece of the story that you heard. Yeah, or they might have heard the CT is normal and right. think that means that you don't need to do anything. Yes, you know? yes that's a big yeah. misconception yeah. With, with nursing that we try and explain. And so I think that just kind of continuously giving them and then kind of checking in with y'all and saying, you know, where are you guys at? What are you thinking about this patient? Because we know that it can be a difficult decision, even if it's a clear, you know, history. Yeah. And so um, just seeing where you guys are at, so I can kind of relay that information to them. Maybe they don't know the questions to ask you. Maybe they are, are comfortable asking you questions, but maybe don't know what to ask and that kind of thing. So we just try and make sure that they're aware of what's going on, aware of what we're going to need to do when we leave CT, aware if they're going to need to be the one pushing, you know, to next yeah. place and, yeah. and all that kind of stuff. So. Yeah. Do you like, I sometimes kind of like a little bit of the quiet of night. Ideally, it's a little slower, a little quieter, a little less frenetic. Right. But then it can just come calamitously yeah. crashing in yeah. when more than should be happening is happening. I have really loved like the peacefulness of it. But then when something does happen or go wrong or anything like that, it is like grasping at straws to like get on top of it because you just aren't, you don't have as many people there to help and run to this, you know, situation. Yeah. And so that's been, I definitely like it for, you know, staying organized. I can stay on top of things more than the day. And, and you, you know. can track things down. That's another thing y'all do yes. is track down when things did go wrong or right. if records aren't getting to another hospital where we're yes. seeing them or something like that. You yeah you're kind of following up on the details. Right, absolutely. I mean, the presence of the stroke coordinator, I don't know how the program would function without 
you guys? I mean, we're very like fortunate to have so many of us, but I do, I mean, I work with a lot of hospitals that don't have any stroke coordinators and it is really hard to, for them to have a program at all. If they want to have an actual certification, that's like a whole nother thing. And it's really, it's really challenging for them. You know, most of their ED managers are also their stroke coordinator or, you know, something like that. And they like may that. get one or two a month or something. Right. Yeah. If they're a small hospital. Exactly. I went out to a rural hospital, I won't name them for this, but we were doing some telestroke education with them. And the doctor that was out there uh, said, yeah, we don't give a lot of TPA. I, I give anti-venom more than I give TPA. <laughs> I was like, yep, that, that sounds about right. Like, yeah. And it, and it relates to, you know, your night shift too. like those nurses that work out there, they're experienced nurses because you don't have, you're out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. You don't have anyone to flood in, you know, to help you with IVs or resuscitation yeah. or anything. And I think that, yes, we do have a lot of resources here, even at night working at a, a large hospital, but it just dwindles, you know, there's a right. lot of programs that can only like ours that can only support until 6 p.m. You know, yeah, and you just do with, with what you've got, you make it work. Exactly. And we've got more than a lot. Yes. Uh, so obviously smaller hospitals don't have stroke coordinators dedicated, but mm -hmm. most bigger stroke centers do yes yeah. yeah i think i don't think that you could have a certification without at least a dedicated person whether they're called a navigator a coordinator a manager whatever their title is and even if they have some other responsibilities i don't think you could get through certification without someone dedicated to that because even if you don't go to code strokes you don't see patients and talk to them you you get rid of all this stuff that we're trying to do because we have a more robust program you still have to answer to joint commission and you still have to answer, you know, to accreditation and all these things. Someone has to look at those specific things right. or and else. Make recommendations of exactly. how to tighten up or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. As a, if you're a neurology medical director, you really don't have the capacity to do that side of things. Yeah. And so I think maybe a small organization could have someone like a medical director do it, but it's just so much, you know, that goes into the actual certification process. And then we try to do above and beyond just because we have uh, some capacity to do it and we just want the best for our patients yeah. and program. So. In this interview with Allie, we touched a little on how for a program to effectively treat patients for an acute stroke, it takes a coordinated effort of many people. From the initial ER response, radiology, techs, pharmacists, nurses, and docs, to all have clear communication. And that's where having access to a coordinator like Allie can be critical. But at night, many of these kinds of allied support positions aren't available. Some smaller hospitals don't even have radiology techs available for MRIs at night. So in some ways, working nights with pared down staffing makes you more self-reliant. And as Pierce Fessel points out in this next interview, night work is in some sense a distillation of medicine into its most clinical form. The decisions are about what medical interventions are necessary with bigger conversations about goals of care, diagnostic questions, discharge and follow-up plans often punted to the day team. So let's hear what he has to say now. What made you want to work nights? Uh, at the time it was a job opening that was available, um, but I also enjoy the clinical my first job as a bedside nurse was the CVISU at Wake Forest Baptist in, at nights. At nights. Okay. So you sort of just started out the gate that way. Yeah. And, and you're, a, you're a hospitalist, not a neurohospitalist. Correct. Just general medicine, internal medicine. Tell me the joke you told me to start with. <laughs> so there's uh, two guys in the hot air balloon and they don't know where they're going and they get blown up above the clouds and they said, oh, we should probably 
figure out where we're going. So they descend into this valley and they shout to a gentleman in the fields and they say, hey, where are we? And the guy in the field shouts up to the two guys in the balloon. Uh, you're, oh, you're north of here, you're south of this place, and you're going about this fast. Before they can get any more information, they get blown up above the clouds again. And one guy in the balloon says to the other, that guy said a bunch of information, but it didn't help me at all. <laughs> he must have been a neurologist, no, right? Been, yeah. Yeah. All right. So is that how you feel about neurologists? <laughs> I, I mean, that's how I feel about neurology. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, you know, so much of neurology is, you know, wide differentials and, you know, very rarely do we have somebody who's just coming in for a plain stroke because it's like, what is the stroke caused by? And right. know, what are all the confounding factors? And, you know, encephalopathy and altered moods are, you know, is it psych? Is it neuro? Is it neuropsych? It's gray. It, it's, it's often you know, very gray. It's often gray hand wringing about like yeah. i was saying you know how much aspirin or should we add glavix like but like so much of like as we dive deeper into medicine and we get better at it medical practice because it's not medical perfect you know <laughs> we have like it, it we have to start you know we have more and more of the conversations is it heart failure or is it renal failure or is it liver failure when somebody comes in overloaded you know it could yeah. be all three you know it could be a little bit of neuro it could be a little bit of psych it could be you know a little bit of the drugs they took before they came in they could have been sort of frail cognitively to begin with right which nobody seems to ever recognize about their family members no i call that the father's day and mother's day syndrome yeah when people come home for father's day and mother's day and they They're like no they were fine they were fine around christmas and it's just like well yeah. like did you see the house and no it's and it's like oh like right. well like your definition of fine is much different than the textbook definition of yeah fine and functioning well and in their defense too it can be hard to see sometimes you know you fill in for people you know what they're going to say you sort of get you know we've right. got blind spots for our families right especially when you when you when you don't see them over a consistent period of time and you just have a phone call conversation once a week or once a right, month, right. you know, it's very insidious of these sometimes right. these changes. But when you see them operate on a daily basis and you realize like the laundry is not getting done, their, you know, their habits of cooking are very dangerous, perhaps. And then getting lost their, or something. Their finances or their the instrumental activities of daily living, such as bill finding and bill operating. Right. You know, those are the things that like are the really nuanced insidious things that we should all keep an eye on with our family and then members. it's an uphill battle sometimes to explain that to families too you know and I mean. it's, it's a touchy thing to you know tell someone nowadays like oh your loved one is dementia right because or has dementia because like oh well like that's not something you want to hear yeah and and yeah. it doesn't come on suddenly and, and it almost yeah. can seem like with a hospitalization like oh it's sudden right even though it wasn't probably you know and when you tell them it wasn't sudden sometimes they have a sense of failure which they yeah don't. which it's you know it's not a sense of failure that you don't recognize it's like your family member from two time zones away is having difficulty it's oh, just yeah. the reality of things and and more and more of our parents especially and if we are high level functioning medical professionals have a chance of being also high level functioning right. people and it may be difficult and more stubborn to seek care or make changes yeah so, or listen to you exactly <laughs> <laughs> you know it was very difficult for like to convince my father to make changes with his health and yeah um it still is do you think it's helpful when you have to get us involved in a case when you have to consult us at night oh absolutely yeah all right what do you have to consult neuro for <laughs> there was i think a couple of weeks I, I called robbie hendry like three or four times Oh, that's so funny uh, um, how that happens, seven right? Day. You know, it's our patients come in pairs. Yeah. Um, so it'll be like two, a week of two seizures and then two strokes. Yeah. Um, 
but uh, yeah, I had seizures or strokes are typically the acute things that are happening. And so overnight. we're helpful when you have to get us involved. Oh, absolutely. All right. Yeah. Good. I think every subspecialty and specialty that I've come across here at Mission has been uh, more than willing to pick up the phone and yeah. come in or come over to it see a patient. Be, right? and, yeah. And that's our yeah. jobs. We're on call for a reason. Right. You know, we have pagers for a reason. So, and I think everyone respects those responsibilities. Yeah, for sure. What's a good night for you? Like, is a good night having really good, interesting patients or would it be more like it's just kind of chill and easy? Well, I think like it depends on how you define good. And I think that I would be bored if they were all just chest pain observation. Yeah. You know, if they were all like little grandmas with mild UTIs who were not septic, it would very much, it would get old very fast to me, clinically yeah. speaking. So I do enjoy the medical complexities and having to think about things and like, oh, do I have to, you know, should I consult someone? But when I'm doing cross coverage, it's a little bit different because I'm not responsible for rounding on these patients. I'm not involved in the workup. I'm not work involved in developing the plan of care. I'm simply putting out fires and responding to a not, million calls. Their, their needs. So uh, I think that in that role, as I because I don't want anything to happen to the patients, I would receive like a good night to be me just twiddling my thumbs because then that means nothing's happening to any patients and no one's in any danger so or harm. So on night shifts, you're either doing cross coverage or admissions. How many calls per hour? Um, I think yeah. that like in the from like seven o'clock to like seven thirty, there's not that many calls. Then from like seven thirty to about ten. I would say I'd probably get close to about two thirds of my calls mm -hmm. because the nurses are seeing their patients for the first time. There's needs being brought up, yeah. such as sleep aids um, as needed medications. As the night goes on, those will kind of fade off. But then those are intermittently things I have to respond to at bedside. You have to transfer patients to the ICU or not. But like last night, I had to transfer three patients to the ICU in an hour. So I was a little busy then. Yeah. But then from four to five, there, you know, there wasn't much going on. So yeah. My role necessitates someone being here, but it's not necessarily a something you can predict at all. Right. Yeah. And can you typically get a little bit of sleep at some point in the night? Oh, no. No, no yeah. sleep at all. No, I, I don't plan on it. Oh, okay. I, I have never tried. I think my role is to be here. My need, right. my role is to respond to needs. You know, unfortunately, due to the volume, I don't think that trying to sleep would be. Would be it would uh, just be painful. It would be painful for me, and also I think it's, it wouldn't be great for, care for the patients for right. me to, you know, take my time responding to even something as simple as a bowel protocol. I think this. Yeah, you wouldn't even get like a long enough, like an hour without a, a call or an interruption. Right, sleep. and uh, having an intermittent sleep pattern while you're also on a string of seven nights, I don't think would bode well for me either. Is that what you do? Seven in a row. Seven in a row. And then seven off. Yeah, and then when I go, you're off, do you go back to daytime? Life? I go back to the land of the living. And then how's it work at, at home and stuff? Do you like have animals and... No animals, no roommates, no significant <laughs> okay, others. So I it's like, just up to you for your yeah, schedule. I, I have the you. best possible scenario for yeah. being a nocturnist, but uh, I am transitioning to days because the switching back and forth has taken its toll on things. In, in what way? Oh, it just, I think it, like, it's taken me longer to transition back to, yeah. you know, normal life after my seven in a row. And I used to be able to be like super active in between my shifts, like sleep for seven hours, go for a two hour bike ride and be ready for work. And I just don't have the energy I used to, even though I'm only two and a half years older. It feels like I've aged. Uh, it is. It's hard. And I've, I can tell I've gained 15 pounds in two and a half years. And yeah. And then are you able to go home and go right to sleep? I am, thankfully. I thankfully have some good blackout shades and I have yeah. a, a quiet street. 
Do you ever have to use like sleepers? Oh yeah, I, oh, yeah. oh yeah, I use melatonin. Oh okay, and that helps even though you're oh because you got blackout shades. Black, know, so blackout yeah, shades, yeah. quiet street. Uh, okay, that's good. Out. But I'm looking forward to like switching to days and not having to take a sleep aid. Yeah, you know I sometimes like also it's a little chill at night. It's a little bit kind of chilled out. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, yeah. the good thing about nights that I enjoy is that it is a very strictly clinical job. The no, the amount of quote social problems yeah. such as our people management like people management but also like dealing with like uh dispositions mm -hmm. and like the discharge planning and things that are not necessarily like clinical problems they yeah. are very much logistical problems or yeah. like oh like having goals of care discussion with families and it's like having social work involved and pastoral care involved like i don't necessarily have to do those things right if i'm having a goals of care discussion it's strictly myself and family and it's just like okay your family members decompensating do you want them to go to the icu right and unfortunately like we just had a pandemic that took a lot of lives so i got really good at being able to have very abbreviated very precise focus goals yeah. of care discussions in which it was just like do you want to vent or not right what, what's next then uh and then and, you can kind of punt to the day team like having those more protracted conversations about right. what your options are from there. right and i'm not my role is to support the day team uh it is not to undermine their plan of care and it's not for me to point fingers that's not my role my role is simply to you know respond to issues in the middle of the night and if i need to make a clinical decision based on family's needs or desires regarding a yeah. patient's care then i need to have that discussion For us in our neuro group, working some nights and some days every month, I think it's a good balance. I often appreciate the austerity of the nights without a lot of other people around. There's a chance to read CME articles or books, maybe even exercise or play a little music. So in this way, the night work with its slower pace, fewer people around can be nice, but it takes a physical and mental toll. Even the best nights, those with few calls after midnight or so, leave you fatigued. There's no such thing as a good night's sleep in a hospital call room. And there's plenty of evidence that night work takes years off of lives and predisposes towards certain chronic conditions like obesity, depression, diabetes, and heart disease. And I think the people who do it deserve recognition and consideration for the sacrifices they make for the benefit of anyone who has ever had an off-hours emergency. Well, that's all for today's episode. In the listener comment section, we have nothing. So write to me. Yes, that means you. Give us your thoughts, questions, or suggestions for future topics at secretlifeneuro at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow, rate, and share this podcast.